Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Pod's Own Country. I'm Chris Byrne, the Yorkshire Post political editor. Um, joining us this week, our guest is Nick Bowes, the chief executive of the Centre for London Think Tank and former right-hand man to Sadiq Khan. And he's also a very proud Yorkshireman, having grown up in Rotherham. Um, we've got lots to talk about, um, so let's get started. So, hi Nick, nice to chat to you today. How are you today? Hi Chris, I'm great, thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, no, thanks very much for, for joining us on the podcast today. Um, so, I guess my first question um, would be, how did a, a lad from South Yorkshire end up working for Sadiq Khan? Um, firstly, when he was an MP, um, and then ending up as the Mayoral Director of Policy. Oh, that's a that's a good question. That's, that's, <laughs> Easy question to start yeah. with. Tell me your life story. My life story and uh, how long have you got? Uh, so, I, mean, I think it's quite it's quite an interesting example of how actually quite small incremental changes between jobs, when you look back over uh, over a grand sweep of time, can it results in a big move from where you started to where you ended up. I, you know, if, if I'd have uh, if anybody had asked me when I was leaving university, uh, uh, you know, said to me, you'd be working uh, for Mayor of London as a director of policy, uh, I wouldn't have believed it. Um, so, you know, my background is very much in, uh, I'm, I did a degree in geography and maths. I've got a PhD in economic geography. Uh, but I was also, also always very active in politics when I was younger. And when I moved to London, I had numerous jobs working in, a kind of policy public affairs environment. I worked for the CBI, I worked for the Engineering and Employers Federation, I worked for the Royal Society, and I was active in my local Labour Party politics uh, in my younger days in London, which happened to be in Tooting. I lived in Tooting for nearly all of the 20 years I've lived in London. Uh, and it, I got to know and worked with Sadiq from before he was an MP uh, and uh, was friends with him during all of those years when he was in Parliament, when he uh, became a member of the Shadow Cabinet, he asked me to go and work with, for him as his special advisor, uh, which I did in 2010. And then I stayed with him through his journey from being a uh, MP to being a candidate for mayor to be mayor and worked with him for the five years at City Hall until May when I left. And so, so w- when you originally met him, was he like a local councillor, was he? He was a local councillor in uh, Wandsworth uh, for the Tooting Ward. He'd been a councillor f- uh, for, uh, since 1994, I think. So he'd been, uh, and I think I first met him back 2001, 2002. So, uh, yeah, it's been nearly 20 years, actually, that uh, I- I've known him. And did you guys kind of immediately hit it off and kind of, realize that you worked well together how, how did kind of the relationship develop i think we i think when you're a member of a, a a political party you make a lot of friends yeah there's a lot of people who may be listening to this who are members of political parties will be able to relate to that it's actually it, it, it's as much about the social as it is about the political and i think i can point to a lot of my friends that i know and i've made friends with and i'm good friends with through the labor party just like other people make friends through other clubs and societies and groups that they're members of and i guess uh you know city can i uh hit it off and just got to know each other and uh, uh agreed on many things mm-hmm. uh and uh and i think you know he saw I'd had a career 
outside of uh, Parliament, in public affairs, in policy, I knew the kind of landscape well. So then when he wanted someone to come and support him in the Shadow Cabinet, um, he, he thought that I would bring something to, to the uh, table. So he asked me to go and work with him. And in looking back over the span of that that twenty year period that you that you sort of worked together, uh, both perhaps unofficially to start with, and then officially in in the job roles, what kind of were your what do you look back on with with most pride of of the kind of the achievements together between the two of you? Well, I, I appreciate other people have been involved in in a lot of these things as well. I mean, that's a. That's a that's a really that's a really good question. I've been asked that question uh, before. You know, there's a the, the the you when you're in when you're in politics, you want to be you want to be in power so that you can do the things that you uh, have told the electorate that you would do. Um, so then, when you actually finally get there, it, it's a fantastic feeling. And and uh, I'm not going to deny that in May 2016. That was a great feeling uh, mm-hmm. when when uh, we took over at City Hall. Suddenly, you've got the levers of power, and you can actually make things happen. Um, so, uh, you know, that in itself was felt like a real uh, achievement. I think it was a you know it was a very difficult five years um, backdrop to the time mm. of City Hall. It was a period of a lot of political instability during the five years there were three different prime ministers we had two two general elections we had the brexit referendum um we had a number of horrific terrorist attacks the grenfell tower fire um Mm. we had uh donald trump's uh, ascendancy in america and then to cap it all at the end we had a pandemic which delayed the election for a year um you know, and, and dealing with all of those things while still trying to do the things that you said you were going to do is 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 a real challenge. And I think it was, you know, I'm proud of the I'm proud of the fact that I could play a role in delivering on some of the big uh, ticket issues like the work around air quality. But it, I was mm-hmm. always also really proud of the fact that we worked at an organisation with exceptional officials. Uh, I mean, it's an exceptional organisation, the Greater London Authority, with really talented people. It's very different to the civil service, but it, it, it stepped up at times of crisis and uh, and uh, and delivered. And uh, I was always proud to be associated with that. And so, I mean, it must have been, as you kind of reflected there, there must have been some very difficult days, particularly Grenfell and the terror attacks. Um, what, what was it like, you know, having almost a front row seat to the response to these really big, but in many cases, awful events? So I think, you know, the, when you're in the, a job at a front line like that, you, you, you can never predict what's going to happen. The, the unpredictability, I guess, is part of what makes uh, it, it, it extra interesting, exciting, but also, you know, there's a kind of sense of dread. You never really know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think there's no amount of training can prepare you for that. Um, and, you know, you've you've basically got to, uh, you kind of instincts kick in, I think, on those types of occasions. And this is a, it's really important that you, uh, you know, you remain calm and you work as part of a team and you gather information as quickly as possible. Um, I mean, I think... Uh, I'm not going to deny that it doesn't take any emotional toll, and it does. And I, you know, and I, I saw that in myself, and I can see that amongst officials. Um, and uh, I think that 
trying to kind of uh, remain professional, uh, you know, focus on what the immediate crisis is, um, and 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 somehow kind of compartmentalize the kind of emotional aspects yeah. is is tough, but it's really it's really really important. And I mean, there was in early 2017 when we had a number of um, terrorist uh, attacks and the Grenfell Tower fire. It was a a really really uh, difficult period for the city. Um, and uh, you know, at one point, it, it felt it felt like it was n- never ending, and that you know, yeah. the city was dealing with some terrible crises. And uh, you know, when when you're supporting a, a, a mayor who is a you know, whoever the mayor is, they are a kind of figurehead for the city, and yeah. their, their job is to kind of reflect and speak on behalf of the city. So those types on those types of occasions, when that role's even more important, yeah. uh, and I think we we tried very hard to. Uh, you know, provide some reassurance and stability at those difficult times. Going to your specific role um, in, in the policy role, as you mentioned a, a minute or two ago, it was been such a tumultuous time for for politics. Um, is, is there anything, particularly now you've moved on, that you look back and you think, oh, maybe we, we wish we could have pushed that agenda a little bit more? Or do you know what I mean? You know. I think it's. Uh, I think it's. I mean, it's a natural kind of uh, human instinct to kind of look back and think, "Oh, I wish we'd done this. I wish we'd done that." And mm-hmm. in the heat of the moment, it never. It's never quite as obvious. I think, given the scale of the kind of uh, uh, challenges that that we faced that were outside of our control, and the kind of political instability, which was for five, the whole five years dominated by, in West mm-hmm. was dominated by Brexit, it was very difficult to further some of the agendas like devolution, more devolution uh-huh. for the city, uh, which, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, all mayors have wanted more devolution um, in London and beyond. And I, I, I in hindsight, it would have been great to have made more progress in those areas, but actually, given the kind of difficulties and the preoccupations that there were in uh, Westminster, you can also understand how uh, that was always going to be tricky. Uh-huh. And so, moving on to your your new role, which you started, as you say, in May, what, what prompted the the move from from City Hall into the world of think tanks and, and Centre for London? Well, I'm a I'm I'm, I'm a policy uh, geek. You know, so I'm a shame and policy geek. Actually, you know, I, that's my thing. I love policy, but I love that interface between policy and 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 small p politics. You know, where they rub up against each other. You know, because it's great coming up with policies, but if they're not actually implemented, not taken forward, there's a kind of you know, it feels a bit wasted. And I, I I, felt, you know, when you work in politics, it's never a good time to leave, but actually elections are a natural time to leave. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I felt that it was time uh, for me to go on and do new challenges. I'd worked directly with Sadiq for 11 years. Mm-hmm. That's a quarter of my whole life. So you, you listeners, because a podcast could work out my age. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, that's a long time in any job with any employer. So it's a natural time to go and uh, but i didn't want to leave the kind of are- same arena and this opportunity arose and you know and i was like well for me that's like on the most perfect next step possible 
and uh, you know, and I, I applied for the job. I always intended to leave at the election, even before this vacancy came up. I applied for the job, and 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 I got it. And what the Centre for London allows me to do is to draw on that knowledge and that experience of my time at City Hall and, and wider than that, um, and really get uh, our teeth into some of the big policy challenges that the city are facing. The funny thing is, it's uh, it's, it's all the same issues were grappling with before it's nearly all the same people organizations and institutions many of which i knew already so that was great Mm -hmm. but just you know so obviously i'm on the outside looking in um but our job is you know our job is to kind of uh is to really get um think hard about what challenges the city's facing across all range of things environmental housing transport development economic economy uh, and come up with ideas and solutions that will help all of the city's decision makers whatever their politics whether they're mayors local authority leaders mps councillors to make informed and uh, evidence-based decisions that will help make the city a better place and so, so- so, sorry to interrupt. I was just going to ask. So, so what's kind of the the ambition and the hope for you know three four years down the line? Is it a case of you see sort of centre for London putting ideas out there and hopefully they translate into eventual reality? Basically, so I think the uh, yeah the 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 aim very much is to. Um, make sure that we're relevant so that we are actually you know we're doing work on the issues that really matter uh and and that when we produce a report or we have an event where there's a roundtable discussion or a conference the things that come out of that are adopted and taken forward um you know because the name of the game for us is uh idea generation and then impact mm-hmm. um but i think to do that you, you as i say you've got to be focusing on the really big issues that matter um and you've also um got to have built a reputation that allow that opens doors and and people and, and and means that people listen when we say things, when we produce work. And we we're ten years old this year, uh, and my predecessor was in charge for the whole of that ten years, and did a fantastic job in taking the centre from nothing to where it is, where actually knowledge of it amongst decision makers and commentators in London is really mm-hmm. high. So when we do say things, I think people do listen. Uh, but I think what's changed. Uh, over the last uh, couple of years, even before the pandemic, actually, was that there was a sense that London was facing a, a whole set of new challenges, mm-hmm. um, and it was really at a kind of fork in the road. Uh, and decisions that were going to be taken over the next couple of years were going to determine the course of the city for a generation, and that the centre needs to be at the heart of those debates, mm-hmm. so that when those decisions are taken they can be as evidence informed as possible and that's our job so how, uh, this might sound like a really obvious question but um how does it actually work on a day-to-day basis when you're pulling together a piece of research mm-hmm. um, and working on what your policy proposals are going to be yeah. can you give me a really brief overview yeah. of how it actually works because we we hear so much about think tanks yeah. and then sometimes the process of how a think tank comes to a particular viewpoint isn't so clear to people yeah no that's a that's a fair question they, they, i think for a lot of people there they you know they hear the phrase think tank and they think of a lot of uh, pointy heads in a room you know kind of uh, <laughs> coming up with uh, 
uh, new ideas, you know, sweating away. I mean, it, 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 there's, there isn't a kind of fixed blueprint for how it would happen, but I'll give you a flavor of like a couple of different routes. We're, we're quite unique as a think tank in that we're, we're about a place. A lot of think tanks, there are a lot of other think tanks that are focused on an issue, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, transport or the environment or... So, you know, we're focused on place, which means that we can cover a whole range of things that affect London. Um, and we do we do very big strategic pieces of work that can last a couple of years. And usually with the big pieces of work, we will pull together a, an advisory group that will draw in... Uh, expertise from outside of the organization to give us a balanced uh, a pool of um, people that really know their stuff in this area that mm-hmm. can really help inform and shape the work. But it's for the center and for the team that work here to synthesize that and to actually turn it into uh, an output with very clear policy recommendations. Um, but then we do other things, you know, so we have, we do smaller pieces of work. We do, we organize conferences, we have roundtables, um, you know, because the convening, the act of convening in itself and bringing together around a table those people that are that know their stuff, that are affected by things, that are decision makers, uh, is, is also an output in its own right. Um, mm-hmm. And so we do, we do that too. And, uh, it, it, you know, it's... Some of it is uh, determined by um, what we think are the big issues facing the city, and some of it is determined by conversations we have with other organisations that we work with who come to us and say, it'd be really great to work with you on this topic. But we really, our independence is like absolutely critical uh-huh. to our reputation and to you know, the outputs that we produce and the things that we say are at our words yeah our recommendations uh uh but we recognize we don't know everything and that we we need to draw on people from the outside sometimes Uh so obviously at the moment the big political buzz phrase is leveling up and to the extent that we've now got a leveling up department and a leveling up minister in michael gove how does and a lot of the talk about leveling up is aimed at what are termed red wall seats in the north of england so my question is, how does London fit into the puzzle? Or is part of your job to make sure that it, it does? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those, uh, it really is the kind of buzzword of the uh, the moment. And it's subject to a lot of debate and discussion at ac- academic levels in the newspapers. There was a couple of articles at the weekend uh, written by uh, columnists talking about levelling leveling up. I think for me, as I say, my background is as a geographer. Uh, I'm fascinated by places and why people are where they are, what makes cities and towns what they are, and the history behind that. And, you know, in the UK, has got a very unequal geography. It has done for many decades. It's not a new problem. Um, and I, I, for me, levelling up is the kind of latest attempt at trying to do something about that geographical inequality. Um, and I think, you know, who could disagree with that? It kind of plays right into the kind of heart of the kind of sense of fair, British sense of fairness that, you know, it's not right that uh, some areas do a lot worse than others. Um, the problem is uh, public policies never quite managed to kind of solve that over many decades. Some things in the past have worked better than others, but essentially those entrenched inequalities, geographical ones are still there. 
I guess the real challenge is that it has somewhat kind of got whittled down to a lowest common denominator conversation that is about North v South. And uh, my criticism of that is that I think it just oversimplifies what, what actually is a very complicated problem. Uh, you know, to say that the North is in need and the South isn't uh, ignores the fact that there are places in the North that are very affluent and uh, doing very well, um, just as it ignores places in London and the South East that are really struggling. And we, I think if we, at the risk of criticising my own kind of economic geography background, if you focus too much on place, you do risk missing and leaving behind many, many people who are actually most in need. And uh, I think one of our jobs at Centre for London is to find a uh, a better way uh, of doing two things. One, you know, just talking about what London's own levelling up challenges are within the city, mm-hmm. because it is a city of huge contrasts. Yes, gleaming skyscrapers uh, uh, on the on the skyline. There is a lot of money sloshing around the city, but there's also very many hundreds of thousands of people living in real poverty um and i think that's not properly understood um not even within london uh, actually but uh, certainly not on a national level and i think we as a set of london have got a job to do to try and find a new way of talking about that and just articulating what london's own leveling up challenges are uh, and also that if we don't solve those we're never going to solve the nation's le- leveling up challenges but then there's a kind of second bit which I think is really important, and that is, you know, London's a, London is the capital city. Um, it is just because of its size, just so dominant. Uh, you know, nine million people live here. There's a nearly a quarter of the country's economic output, I think, um, and and it's a it's a, one of the few kind of glo- truly global cities, and it does operate in a in a kind of global market in many ways, that uh, a very small global market of other cities um, and attracts kind of investment and uh, activities that uh, few other cities in the world could hope to accommodate. Now, I think we've kind of got a, uh, got a challenge to find a way of uh, talking about this has been a positive for the country and we've got to find ways of making it more of a positive for the country because, you know, I think in a, a piece I wrote for uh, you guys recently and I, I talked about, I use Google as an excuse, but as an example, but Google's building a new headquarters at King's Cross. It's an enormous construction. If anybody's passed through King's Cross, they'll probably see it. It's a billion pounds. Now, Google's choice of the, where they put that office was probably between London and other European cities like Frankfurt or Berlin or Paris. And if it didn't come to London, it didn't come to the UK because they want to be in a, a big, in a global city that's connected at a global level. So that would have been a billion pounds the UK wouldn't have got. Um, and uh, and the, you know, the, the country would have been poorer as a result. But I think we've we've lost ways of talking about why that w- would have been a benefit to the country. So I think we've also got a job to do to just kind of find ways of reconnecting the city 
to the rest of the country because we've got a job as a city to play in the levelling up agenda too. And that, uh, you know, there's a lot of activities in the city that depend on the rest of the country and vice versa. It isn't a zero-sum game. London's success doesn't have to come at the detriment of other bits of the country. We can all succeed if we get it right. Um, and I, 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 so I think I'd, I'd like to find a way that we can help those people in power in London talk about this and just articulate that uh, better. Um, because it's not in London's interests to have a, a really geographically unequal country because that puts enormous pressure on, uh, you know, uh, the southeast because it overheats. Um, and uh, it's just not an efficient use of the country's amazing talents uh, for one part of the country to be overheating and other bits of the country to be underused and underutilised. And also, we can't do everything in London. You know, there's no point trying to pretend that, you know, everything can only be done in London South East. It really can't because, you know, we know this. There's expertise across the country in various industries and uh, new technologies. Um, and, you know, it benefits us all to make the most of those. So I hear what you're saying about... Um the need to talk up London, but also address some of the internal challenges that London faces. But just to offer a bit of gentle pushback, obviously this week we've seen um, the £1.1 billion expansion of London Underground go ahead. And at the same time, up here, and let's be real about it, the opinion is split on HS2 and the Eastern leg, but there's still major question marks about whether that transport investment in the north of england is going to happen so do you see obviously someone who's who's come from yorkshire now lives in london they've been in london for a long time do you see sometimes where these perceptions come yeah. from that investment is does seemingly get centered in the capital well yeah i i, I do you know i was back in uh, York, yorkshire recently uh i do see that of course i see that and i feel it you know i'm kind of I'm pulled in both directions, but I think it gives me a, it does give me a understanding and an insight. My world doesn't stop at the M25. Um, and I think, uh, I think I totally, totally sympathize with the arguments that are made about the lack of investment in particularly transport infrastructure in, in the North and the delays that there's been to certain projects. Um, it, it isn't, uh, in the country's interests, so it's certainly not in the north interests. I guess what I would just say is that, um, you know, do we we're never going to uh, for a start. The country's just too centralised. Mm-hmm. You know, well, the centre of London's position for all of its ten years of existence is that there needs to be a proper wholesale strategic approach to devolution in this country, so that local areas, cities, regions have got much more control over their own affairs. And that includes more fiscal powers because, of course, at the moment, and, and I knew this from our town at City Hall, you can have power, but ultimately still how much money you get is decided by Westminster. And the two have got to go together. And that's, you know, 
that argument is made by people across the political spectrum. And I mean, and you know, you and I were at an event in Manchester recently. Michael Hazeltine made that point, you know, and he's the kind of godfather in this area. He made that point that there needs to be fiscal responsibilities to go with that. And I think if you get to a stage where uh, the mayors and the regions have more kind of fiscal powers and therefore more autonomy, they will be able to start taking some of these decisions about what they spend money on. Um, They won't constantly have to bid into the centre, wait ages for a decision, uh, and then lose out to someone else. And, you know, then there's a... a, And that kind of... bidding against each other. It's very inefficient. A lot of public sector time and effort is spent on the business mm-hmm. process. It's just not very efficient. So I think the real prize is, is all working together on getting yeah. much more devolution. Even in London, where people aspire to, we want London-level devolution. Actually, London's got a long way to go to get anywhere close to most other big cities of its size. I think on the, on the specifics of the... Um, uh, on the Northern Line extension, in, in particular, I mean, this is a fifteen-year project. I mean, it's been in. Uh, it started out in about two thousand six, two thousand and seven, and I think it got its initial approval under the tail end of the last Labour government. Um, uh, it's a scheme that, uh, rather uniquely, is uh, uh, for those who don't know, it's basically led to the creation of two new tube stations and a couple of miles of extension to the Northern Line to the former Battersea Power Station site, which is a very big piece of derelict land, probably the biggest piece of derelict land close to central London. And it is essentially being funded out of the uh, out of developer contributions from that scheme. And that those contributions are being used to pay back a loan to the government that helped build it. Uh-huh. So I, I, I guess I'd say on that that I'm not sure that scheme, I'm not sure... I, I, while I totally uh, think it's wrong that uh, the, the investment is not happening in the north, I think you can't say that that scheme went ahead and deprived yeah. a scheme somewhere else of happening because I think that it just the uniqueness of the way it's funded. Just, it was a funding differential yeah. which might be different if you had devolution in other areas and they might have a different perspective. Yeah. And just on, on that point, actually, um, I was at the Transport for the North conference this week and Andy Burnham was talking about... Um, it, a very simple thing he was calling for London level bus fares for the north mm-hmm. of England pound fifty five for a single mm-hmm. fare um, he hopes to get it going in Greater Manchester relatively soon and hopes that West Yorkshire South Yorkshire and Liverpool will follow suit mm-hmm. is that a good idea and with a policy hat on how achievable is it <laughs> well one of the benefits of um one of the many benefits of having an integrated transport authority like London has with Transport for London is that you have a uh, you're in control of a suite of different uh, transport options and you have a single budget and you can move money around and allocate it as you see fit. And in London, the buses uh, is one pound fifty five for um, a flat fare, um, and that. Uh, is good value when you compare it to the rest of the country. But the buses in London are heavily subsidised, um, and I think to the tune of about £700 million a year. Yeah. yeah, So that's an enormous amount of money. But that subsidy comes from the fact that the Tube, in normal times, runs at a massive profit of over a billion pounds, actually. So 
you know, a decision has been taken. In fact, all three mayors have taken this decision that that surplus would be used to run a really good bus service. Uh-huh. Um, and it's a totally the right thing for other parts of the country to want to aspire to have a joined up integrated transport authority like London's got and to build up the kind of financial clout to be able to take those types of decisions. They may decide they, they want to do something else. They might expand the tram network or, uh, you know, other or improve light rail or something like that. But having that kind of strategic control and control of ticketing and uh, being able to take those decisions is a good thing. And I, 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 I think it's absolutely right that other parts of the country should be have those same types of powers and should be looking to learn from what london's done well and what it hasn't done well it is worth remembering tfl is only 21 years old mm-hmm. um you know it was glued back together again when the mayoralty was created it's quite a young transit authority but it's built a reputation very quickly for innovation for quality service it's not perfect by any means but people do come to look and learn from it and you know rightly they look at our ticketing system they look at the buses they look at the way we fr- uh, have train concessions that work really well and uh, uh they want more of that in their area and great but on on that point though i think because that's a really key point about the tube almost pays for the buses the north at the moment doesn't have a money spinner of that nature so from the sounds of it it it, it might end up being a bit more complicated than just let's do let's do a London. Yes. Well, I guess then that you start to get into the kind of decisions that politicians will have to take about, yeah. uh, you know, the degree to which um, they want to use uh, other funding sources to to subsidise their buses and uh, or other bits of public transport and you know where that money's going to come from you know if a politician decides that they want to subsidize their buses at the moment they don't have enormous amounts of fiscal devolution to be able to raise money in other areas so um you know that's on that i, I could see that that's where frustrations start to mm-hmm. arise because they feel like they haven't got uh the, the the full set of powers to be able to take those types of decisions um and uh you know I, but that's where London would back, back them because yeah. Yeah, London too once uh, probably would like to have more uh, f- fiscal uh, devolution. So, uh, you know, there's, there's shared interests in a lot yeah. of agendas, actually. So so just as a final question, and thank you so, so much for your time today, is obviously you're someone who grew up in Yorkshire, been living in London for, for 20 years. I was just wondering what you've learned about the misconceptions that Northerners might have of London, but also sometimes what Londoners might think of Northerners too. <laughs> Anything you want to share in your new apolitical role? It's a funny thing because I've lived here, Yeah, as you say, I've lived here 21 years. Uh, and um, so when I go back to Yorkshire, people say, oh, you've lost your accent, you sound really posh. Uh, but down in London, people still say, oh, you sound really Northern. Uh, so there's a bit of me that kind of think, well, you know, I can't, can't, can't both be right. But, I, 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 you know, and I think maybe when I spend a bit more time back up north, I start to go a bit more uh, uh, northern. Do you know what? I think, I think there's one thing about the UK is that there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, you know, the, we have such a rich kind of uh, patchwork quilt of uh, 
areas and places and localities mm. that have really distinct identities, uh, very proud, uh, you know, speak very different uh, accents and dialects. Uh, you know, and I know this coming from Rotherham in that, uh, you know, Barnsley's five miles away, Doncaster's five miles away, Sheffield's five miles away. They all talk very different. You don't get that so much down south. Not not so hyper local. It's quite interesting. So, but I think I think I've realised that you know these friendly rivalries that there are, and as a Yorkshire person outside of Yorkshire, I will fiercely defend the county. But I know that within Yorkshire, there's quite a lot of rivalry within. Yeah, of, I was just yeah. about to say to you when you were saying that point about Rotherham and Barnsley and Sheffield even being five miles apart from each other. It's even and, and like the differences in accent, but there's even quite a different outlook on life sometimes, isn't there? Like just a different way of looking at the world and stuff. Yes, I mean I know there's always been a friendly rivalry between uh, Sheffield and Leeds for many many years, and uh, quite a lot of resentment from Sheffield. <laughs> I was going to say maybe not so friendly sometimes. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, sometimes that plays out in you know football. Sometimes it plays out in 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 other ways. So. But I think it's just an illustration of the fact that you know the, it's that we we actually live in a very rich but uh, mm. complex uh, country, and and I think what I say to people in in London who've maybe not been to Yorkshire, I also all uh, the north in general, but Yorkshire in particular, I say it is a beautiful county and it has some of the most fantastic kind of evocative landscape and uh, historic towns and amazing cities, beautiful coastline, and it's just, you've just got to go and experience it. Um, it's funny how many people just think that I automatically know how to make Yorkshire puddings. Uh, <laughs> in fact, I do, but I don't know. I was just about to ask you that. <laughs> but, and uh, and, and the risk... The risk of uh, the risk of a uh, mentioning a, a, a brand name in particular. I, I everywhere I've worked, particularly the last two jobs, City Hall on here, I've got everybody drinking Yorkshire tea because oh, we do you. know how to drink proper tea in Yorkshire, and uh, I, I'm very I'm very passionate about that. And I, I was I was on leave last week, but my colleagues have bought the biggest sack of Yorkshire tea for the office. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you know, and I just think I, 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 it disappoints me when the rivalries get heated mm-hmm. because we're we are a we're our, our, there's a richness comes from that kind of diversity, um, and I think that similarly, you know, I when I come back to Yorkshire, I have picked it up a bit more recently. There's a bit of there's, I think there's more resentment towards. Uh, London, but it's. I think when you start to scratch away at it, it's not actually always resentment at the city or the people that live there. It's at things that are based there, and it's mm-hmm. nearly always, I'm afraid, uh, Parliament. But sometimes mm-hmm. it's other things like the, uh, you know, the city uh, mm-hmm. financial institutions, or sometimes the BBC. You know, kind of institutions that are based in. In, in in London and actually the there's no there's very often no uh you know the gripe's not with people that l- live here and people I hope still really value and enjoy being able to hop on a train and come down yeah. to it in a couple of hours and just experience you know what there is here because we are so lucky as a country to have a city like London and most other countries would give anything to have a city like London mm. in their country. 
Just as a final question, actually, obviously you've been in London for over 20 years. Is Yorkshire home or is London home for you now? How do you see it? Or is it is it a mixture of both? That, do you know, I, I think about that a lot because I thought about it recently. And um, I think when I go back to visit my family, it doesn't feel like my home anymore. But obviously there's still a very strong emotional attachment um because i've lived in london for 21 years i have roots here my friend friends are here and uh, uh just through familiarity it's more it feels like my home but that doesn't mean i don't i don't still feel yorkshire at, at, in, at you know at my heart and uh and, and uh i'm still kind of very proud of those those links but it's not where my life is yeah that makes a lot of sense. Well, look, thank you so, so much for your time. Been absolutely fascinating to speak to you, Nick. Um, yep, much appreciated. And um, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Pod's Own Country. If you have any topics you think we should be covering or any stories you think we should be digging into, please get in touch with me um, via email, chris.burn at jpimedia.co.uk. Speak next week.